Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Dr. Lauren Cagle says that climate change is one of the most controversial and polarizing scientific topics Americans are talking about today. And she has a little bit different take on maybe how that conversation should take place. Uh, She's going to suggest, I think, uh, a different uh, mindset, maybe a little bit different thought process about how we should discuss climate change. Uh, I'll ask her about that today on the podcast. Dr. Cagle is an associate professor of writing, rhetoric, and digital studies at the University of Kentucky. She's also director of environmental and sustainability studies at UK. She is also a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, who is available to uh, come to your uh, group, your meeting, uh, your gathering, wherever you are across the Uh, state of Kentucky and talk to you about this topic and others. We have so many really good qualified scholars and authors, uh, historians, uh, speakers, um, musicians, uh, all in our Speakers Bureau. uh, KYHumanities.org will take you right to the uh, number of uh, people that we have. Uh, There's a, a program tab. You pull that down. Uh, they're easy to find. You can look at uh, who you would like to have come in and, and talk with you about a variety of topics, including climate change, which we will discuss today. And Dr. Cagle, you say that you uh, will uh, talk and, and explain that climate change, uh, as we all know, has become so controversial. Um, and at times, um, I guess the conversation has become somewhat uh, vitriolic, mean, if you will, uh, in a way that uh, you are suggesting that it doesn't really have to be. Yet here we are in the midst of a uh, 2024 presidential campaign, as well as elections all over the country. And we see that climate change is one of those issues that sort of is bubbling up to the surface. And it doesn't have to be something that um, people need to really, they can debate, but they don't really have to get angry about. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And in fact, as it turns out, we know that most Americans don't get angry about climate change. They get concerned about climate change. So uh, what's really interesting about the kind of polarization that you're describing is that um, we have a really overblown sense of how polarized people actually are about climate change. And when you look at the data, um, the social science, uh, we have recent numbers from 2023. The reality is that most Americans are worried about climate change and they want elected officials and others to do something about it. And so when people on uh, all, both sides of the aisle or all sides of the aisle begin to talk about it, they're still uh, controversy about it. Uh, I, I would, I think I, I heard just uh, recently, you mentioned 2023, the hottest year on record. Mm-hmm. Yet all of us uh, in Kentucky uh, realize that we've just gone through uh, probably one of the deepest freezes we've had in uh, in years, uh, snow mm-hmm. still on the ground. 
Um, and that doesn't uh, work well for the argument that it's the, one of the hottest records on uh, in 2023. So, mm-hmm. so how do people come to the table to begin to talk about this? Is it, is it the incidents that occur in one year or do you have to look at it over time? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, for the scientific understanding of climate and sort of how we measure and make claims about changes to the climate, we definitely have to look over time. So the kind of default amount of time that we uh, calculate averages for scientific purposes is 30 years. Um, so we're looking at, you know, every 30 years, how is the baseline changing? But you're absolutely right that, you know, the the average person who isn't running scientific uh, calculating scientific equations to figure out how climate is changing is thinking about it in uh, the context of their personal experience. And so that means the weather that they have experienced in their lifetime and the weather that they've experienced most recently. We have, uh, you know, as we know, humans have a recency bias. Um, it's one of our many cognitive biases that shape the way that we think. So that means that more recent events tend to kind of weigh heavier in our reasoning. Um so it's absolutely true that people are thinking about climate as, you know, what have I experienced? And, you know, what I experienced was five inches of snow on Friday coming down here in Lexington, where I am. Um, but what's really interesting about climate is that uh, people have a really sort of deep understanding of the weather. It's something that we all experience and we all share that experience, even if what um, the kind of specifics uh, vary. And we all experience seasonal weather. So there are these classic examples of uh, Senator James Inhofe, for example, who is a very (laughs) um, infamous climate denier uh, in the uh, National Congress. He famously brought a snowball to the floor of Congress one year uh, to demonstrate that climate change couldn't possibly happening because how could we have snow? And many people actually realize, well, we still have seasons, right? Just because the average temperature is getting warmer doesn't mean that literally every day is warmer. Um, And in fact, warmer is a relative claim. So even if every day was getting warmer, if the baseline is really cold for a season, and this is what we're seeing in Kentucky, that overall winters can be warmer, but that doesn't mean that they're hot necessarily. It just means they're warmer than they were in the past. Um, But to your question about getting people to the table, uh, we have strong evidence that personal experience and personal experience of extreme weather, which includes heat extremes and cold extremes, totally gets the conversation started. That's a place that people really start thinking about climate. You know, when people experience floods, as many Kentuckians have had, unfortunately, um, in the past few years, they often will start thinking about and talking about climate more. Uh, When people experience uh, heat waves, when people experience uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, that's when the conversation about climate often becomes live for them. How long have we been talking about climate change or when did we begin to uh, begin to label it as climate instead of just talking about the weather? Um, Has that been, I mean, really, it's it's a relatively except in the scientific community i would uh imagine it's relatively a, a new common term is it not perhaps i guess what do you mean by term new well new within the, the last few let's say couple of decades when we mm-hmm. uh the headlines weren't just about uh, uh the weather report uh it, it, it now we're talking about 
uh, climate and and what what is contributing to the climate change and and all of that. So uh, let's say fifty years ago, um, somebody was talking about the climate. I mean, the mm-hmm. cl- climate was a a noun of uh, a word that was used to describe something that was going on somewhere. Um, uh-huh. Uh, but it wasn't really related so directly to what the weather was going to be or how you would predict what the what the climate was going to be. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right, Bill. So our scientific understanding of uh, the climate as a feature of our natural world, it goes back several hundred years. And uh, in fact, greenhouse warming, which is the mechanism by which climate change is happening now, uh, specifically anthropogenic or human caused or human accelerated climate change is happening now. We've understood that mechanism since the early 1800s. We didn't have the technology at the time to model it or to, you know, send up uh, sensors way up into the atmosphere to prove it. But chemists at the time could say, oh, yeah, if we put you know, this gas into the atmosphere, this is what is going to happen. And sure enough, they've been proven right. In fact, there was a a woman scientist in the early 1800s was one of the first to uh, predict greenhouse gas based warming. Um, The idea of climate change as something that humans have a hand in is, in fact, much more recent, as you have noted. We've understood that the climate, so the overall atmospheric concentration and its impact on things like temperature, like sea temperature, because, of course, temperature, we're usually talking about air temperature when we say, but um, ocean temperature is a thing. Um, We're also thinking about, uh, you know, how how big are the ice caps, right, which is, of course, connected to the question of ocean temperature. That's going to affect things like currents, like where are the ocean currents, right? So climate is we often sort of reduce it to temperature, but it's kind of the the expansive system, the entire global atmospheric system and all the impacts it's had. We've understood again for a very long time within the scientific community that the climate has changed over time in geological time, right? So over millions and millions of years. Uh, Specifically thinking about how humans have impacted climate change, we're looking at kind of 1950s onwards. And the entry into the public conversation in the U.S. really took hold in 1988, I believe it was. We had an extreme heat wave that summer. And James Hansen, who at the time was the director of NASA's Goddard uh, station, he testified before Congress about climate change being a risk to national security, being a risk to um, the national energy grid. And Congress took him really seriously. And at the time, uh, President Bush, the elder, uh, also took it very seriously. It was not polarized politically. Um, There was not kind of this effort to undermine the understanding of scientists. It was a relatively straightforward process of scientists showing up in the public sphere and saying, hey, this is a problem we need to pay attention. And lots of people going, oh, okay, yeah, let's get on board. And then we saw a real swing in the 90s um, away from that kind of broad support behind the idea that we needed policy change to address this looming crisis. And we can trace that change in the 90s to very intentional efforts to undermine scientific authority. So there were extremely well-funded efforts, mostly by fossil fuel industry interests, to make Americans and the average voter doubt the reality of climate change uh, so that the policy changes could be slow-walked or even uh, backburnered entirely. Uh, And then 
that kind of set the stage for the 2000s. The 2000s were, of course, primarily marked by a Bush administration uh, in terms of the executive branch of the government. Uh, We saw some, again, walkbacks of um, environmental regulations, including efforts to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And then in the 2010s, we've seen a real swing back. And folks like myself who study climate communication will trace that to the fact that it is increasingly hard to deny the reality of anthropogenic climate change because we are seeing it all around us. The more, you know, thousand year floods that we experience, the more once in a lifetime hurricanes that we experience, the more heat, like heat stroke deaths that we experience, the harder it is to deny the reality of climate change. And so we're seeing a real shift from climate change isn't real to well, it's not that bad. We don't need to do anything about it. Don't worry about it. Um, so you see folks kind of like backpedaling from their uh, initial like hardcore denier stances. But that's kind of the history of the the conversation in the public sphere in a very, very small nutshell. In the 90s, when it began to turn and the you mentioned the, the fossil fuel industry really led the turn, uh, was there a, a name or a group that besides the fossil fuel industry, was it a, an association, an agency that that led the uh, the argument that uh, all of this was uh, made up uh, junk science, uh, that it's been going on for years and years? Or uh, did it just uh, was it um, a mission creep on their part? Did they just begin to, to uh, put out false information and false messaging? Both, uh, both and definitely. There were uh, a number of organized efforts to create doubt in the public sphere around the science of climate change. And it was led by fossil fuel industry uh, interests. Um, we have uh, irrefutable evidence that fossil fuel companies, major companies like Exxon, Chevron, BP um, had been conducting their own studies, running their own models as late as or as early as the 1970s. And they had internal memos documenting the reality of climate change and making the business case for uh, not releasing that information publicly. Because if people understood the role that fossil fuels played, then it would be harder for them to profit from their vested interests, right? The the oil and gas that was still in the ground that they owned, but couldn't make a profit on until they got it out of the ground and sold it. Um, They were joined by a series of think tanks. Um, So the... uh, American Heritage Foundation. I'm not sure if they were involved as early as then, but they certainly have been since. And other primarily conservative think tanks aligned and participated in this effort. And um, there's a great book by a historian named Naomi Oreskes um, and Eric Conway called Merchants of Doubt. And there's also a documentary that they have produced based on the book where they pulled together all of the information about this intentional effort to spread misinformation. And not only do they show that that was happening for climate change, they also track back 
the strategies and the people involved. So the organizations and in some cases, specific scientists who were on the payroll to go on, you know, news talk shows and talk about how, well, you know, we're not entirely sure that these strategies and these scientists had participated in the exact same efforts in relation to tobacco research, in relation to um, anti-inflammatory chemical research, uh, in relation to uh, ozone hole research, right? All of these scientific issues where scientists were very, very much in alignment saying, this is a problem, we need to address it. And there was some interest that was opposed to public policy efforts to fix a problem that the scientists had identified. And then these industries developed a playbook. Here's how we make sure that policies don't come down that are going to regulate us and eat into our profits. And so climate was, in fact, um, uh, maybe the fifth or sixth of these issues, right? Mm. The the playbook was already well established by the time efforts to derail conversations about climate policy came along. Why is it that uh, conservatives, and usually you think conservatives, Republicans, are the ones who are usually labeled, uh, if you will, deniers, although mm. climate deniers, although I'm going to refer to, and you may have heard it just this morning, and i tried to uh, print out the script and could not uh, do that. But uh, NPR had a piece on uh, from New Hampshire about young Republicans who have an opposite view of uh, older uh, party members who are the deniers, the younger uh, Republican movement in New Hampshire, at least taking one state, the primary tomorrow, um, are very much interested in recognizing climate change as a, a real problem and are doing something about it. Uh, that's one of the reasons that they, some of the younger Republican members in uh, New Hampshire are looking at uh, Nikki Haley instead of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but why is it, um, is it, does it just go back uh, decades of uh, uh, conservatism uh, leaning toward pro-business or having control of the fossil fuel uh, business of um, of owning coal mines in Kentucky. Um, mm -hmm. Why why conservatives and why not? I mean, if we're going to label people, why not why not liberals being uh, tossed in there of questioning and and having a doubt about uh, whether climate is really a, a problem in the uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. The argument that Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway make in their book, Merchants of Doubt, which is a, a super readable, it's it's written for a general audience, but is just incredibly well argued and researched and documented. The argument that they make is that when you look at the individual scientists that were called on by these various industries to testify, to go on news shows, um, to spread doubt, um, that's the where the title Merchants of Doubt came from, that the, the real product that these scientists were producing was doubt about scientific consensus. When you look at those individual scientists, many of them were older folks, so um, mostly men, um, greatest generation, so even pre-baby boomer, who came out of a political climate that was extremely, extremely concerned about creeping communism that was really concerned about uh, national borders, about um, 
you know, the rising influence of multinational organizations like the UN and the role that that might play in reducing sovereign nations um, say over what happened within their own borders. And so the, the argument that Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway make is that it's easy to say, oh, well, I'm sure these scientists were paid well to go on TV and say that there's no scientific consensus around climate change, but that really their motivations can be better understood as, as a deep ideological commitment to uh, certain kinds of political approaches, and that they saw the kinds of regulations that would be required to uh, reduce tobacco consumption, to uh, reduce the use of anti-inflammatory chemicals, uh, and to, you know, uh, slow or reverse climate change, that they saw these regulations as truly threatening to American freedom. And uh, that sort of relationship between conservative ideology and efforts to oppose policy around climate change makes a lot of sense to me and to a lot of other researchers that Yes, certainly there's a, a pro-business aspect, um, but that really, if you reason backwards from so solutions, that it becomes clear understanding and accepting the reality of climate change is really, really threatening if you are somebody who's very opposed to uh, large-scale transnational cooperation um, or really opposed to efforts to um, sign on to commitments, right, as a nation that other nations um, are engaging in. You see this with opposition in particular to UN Agenda 21. So the United Nations Agenda 21 for sustainable development was one of the first ways that the United Nations um, started promulgating uh, guidelines, basically, to develop sustainably um, and to try to curb some of the behaviors, some of the infrastructural approaches that contribute to climate change. And UN Agenda 21 is specifically opposed within the Republican platform going back to the early 2000s since, since it was adopted. And so it's, I think, less about well, I don't know. I, it's always both and, right? Like motivations are never singular, but I think it's as much about an effort to protect, protect a certain concept of national sovereignty as about, say, money. Well, I, I may be mistaken about this, but it was not only uh, opposed by the Republican administrations. Uh, didn't the Biden administration uh, refuse to sign on uh, in, in the uh, or was that another uh, worldwide treaty that uh, that that? Uh, the United States and maybe one other, maybe Russia, mm -hmm. or the only, or, or maybe China. I mean, we join. The, yeah, the, that is a different. On? That's a different one. Yes. Okay. So, right. okay. Um, and that's again. So that you're absolutely right, though, to to point out that there, um, within U.S. politics, all of the U.S. political spectrum, when it comes to environmental issues and climate issues in particular, uh, falls to the right um, of basically every other Western democracy. Mm -hmm. um, so even yeah. conservatives in other Western democracies have are much more open to climate policy um, than even liberals in the U.S. or the, the Democratic yeah. Party. It's amazing sometimes you hear that uh, even some third world countries uh, have signed on to uh, uh, to to climate uh, change in uh, a forward thinking uh, uh when when others uh countries uh, nations have not um yeah so um well we're going to take a, a short break and uh hear from our underwriter but 
when we come back on the other side of this, uh, Dr. Cagle, I want you to talk to me a little bit about um, your students um, and the interaction you have with them about climate change and the response that uh, you get when you tell them to sort of, uh, well, uh, whatever you tell them, we'll, we'll, we'll find that out too. So our uh, podcast, uh, Think Humanities, is uh, brought to you by Spalding University's Senior Jeter Naslin Karen Mann uh, Graduate School in Writing. We'll be right back after this word from them. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. So how do you approach this subject in um, in class, Dr. Cable? Cable, I know you don't, um, this is not an, an everyday subject for you, uh, but I would imagine anybody coming to your class, uh, a student uh, today uh, knows uh, or has heard the term climate change, knows a little bit about it. Uh, I hope they do and are, are ready to take a position one way or the other on it. So how do you want your students to approach uh, this very controversial topic? I teach uh, a number of different classes, some of which are focused um, exclusively on climate change. In fact, this semester I'm team teaching a class with my colleague, Dr. Alice Turkington at UK. Uh, she is a physical geographer and we're teaching a class about climate impacts in Kentucky. So in that class, we do get to talk about climate every day. Um, and we have dedicated students who really want to learn more about what's happening around them. Uh, I think the starting point for me is always that the science is not up for debate. Um, so as I started off with, we know that the vast majority of Americans, and that includes the vast majority of Kentuckians, believe that climate change is real and it's happening. Um, I don't need to persuade most of the students and those who might be uncertain, which uh, even among the people who are not sure that climate change is happening, it's actually a very small percentage that are hardcore deniers. The vast majority are just kind of uncertain or haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it. And so me talking about it is a chance for any student who falls into those camps to uh, understand the scientific basis and understand that this is something we know. Is it they don't quite understand the impact? Is it because it hasn't touched them personally or they haven't been uh, in a situation where they've witnessed a flood or they haven't had a family member with heat stroke or mm -hmm. uh, it's they're living their lives as if this is the way it's always been? Some of all of that. I think I think one of the things that is useful to distinguish, and this is another thing that I talk with students about, is that there's a difference between understanding and 
uh, as a sort of knowledge-based or reason-based uh, response and feeling your emotions. So you can know that climate change is happening and not be worried about it. Uh, and then perhaps not change any behaviors in relation to it. And so there's so much focus in other spaces on the question of reason, right? So are people understanding, are people educated, are people reasoning their way to trusting scientists that climate change is happening? And frankly, that conversation is uh, 15 years out of date. Um, we're past the point of needing to persuade literally 100% of people who don't understand or uh, don't believe that climate change is happening, don't trust scientists. We're at a point where a lot more people have that knowledge, have that education, and have moved into a place of being worried, of wanting to do something about it. And so the conversation I'm interested in having with students is, okay, what do we do? What are the policy options? What are the different things that people are proposing? How do we handle the emotional experiences that particularly younger folks are having? Um, and so a lot of what we do in the classroom, I teach writing as my kind of primary area. A lot of what we do is, you know, what role can writing play? What role can communication play in addressing this issue and in helping individuals handle it in their own lives, um, as well as making the large structural changes that need to be made? How do you uh, respond to the question or the statement when you hear a anyone, uh, a politician saying that they believe that there are factors that are contributing to the climate and that it is changing, yet we still need to talk about having fossil fuels at the table during the discussion that we can't just automatically switch to all electric vehicles or complete solar and wind, that we still need to go to Eastern Kentucky, uh, mine some coal, uh, pump the earth uh, for natural gas and whatever other chemicals uh, that are polluting uh, the air. How do you respond to someone who says that there's, there's, a big tent for all of the above. It very much depends on who the person saying that is and what the context is. So in the classroom, uh, I would say, okay, let's talk through that, right? What are the underlying assumptions here, uh, both in terms of what impact continued fossil fuel consumption is going to have, uh, in terms of who the stakeholders are, why we need to be concerned about certain stakeholders, that sort of thing. So my response to that would be, okay, let's talk through this. Let's interrogate this. Um, as a private citizen, I uh, think that that is a stalling mechanism that has been used for a number of years to, again, slow walk any changes. Um it is absolutely true, and this is not my primary area of ex expertise, so I'm, I'm drawing from what I've learned from others. Uh, I have friends and colleagues and collaborators who work in, in the energy industry. It is absolutely true that the United States grid in many places is not prepared to go fully electric, whether that's because we don't have the plants in place, whether that's because the grid is unreliable, uh, we don't have battery capacity, whatever it is. And people need energy to live. That is 1000% true. So I think that uh, there's truth to the fact that we can't just overnight this. 
Um, but I also think that whenever you hear someone making claims about how we need to keep doing something that we know is harmful, you have to ask yourself who the person making that claim is and what their interest in continuing that is. Um, you don't have to accept that everybody making claims is operating in good faith. As a rhetorician, I am I have been trained to closely analyze speech and speakers. And so it is entirely possible to take a close look at who's making the claims and say, you know what, I don't think this person is saying this because they really care about other people, because they really care about, you know, Joe in Texas's access to his oxygen, or because they really care about making sure that everybody in Eastern Kentucky has access to internet. Um, and so you don't have to take that person seriously if you don't think they're operating in good faith. Final question um, is a, um, a quiz for you, Dr. <laughs> sure. So um, of these uh, topics and, uh, and issues, uh, where would you, uh, you may have to jot a couple of these things down. You, where would you rank um, them from uh, one to four or five as far as uh, key issues and, and, and importance uh, of what should be um, addressed by the uh, the next uh, administration or the next Congress? All right. Mm -hmm. uh, the economy. Mm -hmm. Immigration climate change, foreign policy, space exploration. Mm. I wanted to be an astronaut my whole life. So I ended up a rhetoric professor um, because I have terrible eyes, so I couldn't be a pilot and I didn't <laughs> want to be an engineer. So, you know, I am tempted to say space exploration, but um, the reality is that all of those things are climate issues. So uh, the economy, immigration, foreign policy, space exploration, they're all climate issues. Um, so much of our understanding of what is happening in our atmosphere, what is happening with our climate has been advanced by space exploration, by our ability to put things into space and look back at ourselves and to study other planets and other um, planetary objects and understand what's happening with their atmospheres. I mean, you wanted to talk about greenhouse gases, like go look at Venus. Venus is the queen of greenhouse gas um, uh, the, or the greenhouse effect. Um, so space exploration certainly will help with advancing our scientific understanding of what's happening. In terms of policy, the economy, immigration, foreign policy, it's all wrapped up in climate. Um, you can go back as early as the Syrian civil war, if not earlier, to look at one of the first major global climate-based conflicts. Um, again, foreign policy, not my area of expertise. Others have made the argument that the Syrian civil war was our first major climate conflict because of the role that water and drought played in kicking off that uh, civil war. Uh, immigration, is being driven increasingly by climate change. We often think when we talk about immigration in the context of politics uh, about transnational immigration, but of course we have internal migration happening all the time within the United States. And we're seeing these conversations happen right here in Kentucky. What happens when Eastern Kentucky keeps flooding because we're getting more and more uh, precipitation uh, in shorter and shorter periods of time, which is kicking off more floods and people don't have housing and they can't rebuild because there's nowhere to build because the floodplains are growing. Uh, where do those folks move, right? That is a climate question. The economy, 
is a climate question. Our U.S. economy is so wrapped up in fossil fuels. You know, people think of oil and gas um, it, primarily in, in connection with transportation, I think, and to some extent industry. But you also have to think about plastics. So plastics and plastics production make up a huge part of the global economy. And that is all fossil fuel. Plastics are made out of dinosaur bones. Um, and if we are really serious about doing something about climate, that means we have to take a really big picture look at the economy. And there are efforts to do that. This is where uh, the Green New Deal is trying to intervene. This is where the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed a couple of years ago, has been putting a lot of work in, is really making that connection between climate and economy clear and finding ways to move forward that are as win-win as possible, right? We can make better jobs uh, for people. We can make more jobs for people. We can bring more money in. We can return manufacturing to the U.S. Um, and we can do all of that without further exacerbating the climate crisis. Um, I am very hopeful. Uh, we've made a lot of great strides in the last couple of years as a country. Um, certain states have made great strides. Uh, Kentucky, we have one of the best weather monitoring networks in the nation, the Mesonet, which means that we have incredible data to help us make decisions about what we want to do, how we want to build, how we want to create resilient communities. So I'm feeling really hopeful at this point in time that if folks can see the connection that climate has to all of these other issues, that we stop thinking of it as a zero sum you know, if the administration focuses on this, they can't focus on that, but rather that we can collectively try to tackle a lot of problems at once. A strong uh, optimistic closing argument from Dr. Lauren Cagle. Uh, we appreciate you being here uh, today. Dr. Cagle is an associate professor of writing, rhetoric, and uh, digital studies at uh, the University of Kentucky and also director of the Environmental Sustainability uh, Studies and Sustainability Studies. And she's also a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, available to come to your church, your group, your organization, and talk about the, the topics uh, that we've been talking about for the for the last few minutes i'm sure she'd be glad to to make the trip on a on a bright sunny day no no floods or no uh, uh, ice storms uh i don't know she might travel through those two uh to your uh, destination uh, she'd have to make that decision but dr cagle thanks very much for informing us and helping us understand a little bit more about the origins of climate change and what's going to happen next thank you very much for having me Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.